Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we find out how circular approaches make a better business and a better world. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting to those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll talk to entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. We'll find out how circular principles can create value, increase resilience and reduce risk to make a competitive, sustainable organisation. You'll find the show notes and links at www.circulareconomypodcast.com where you can subscribe to updates and useful resources. In today's episode, I'm talking to Sophie Thomas, who was recommended by designer Adam Fairweather back in episode six. Sophie is an established leader in communication and design, and in the investigation and promotion of circular economy design principles. She's been working in the fields of ethical design, behaviour change and material process through her design agency, Thomas Matthews Limited, for nearly 20 years. We find out how Sophie uses her experience in sustainable and ethical design to help people understand more about the circular economy. We talk about the groundbreaking Great Recovery Project, which looked at the challenges and opportunities of the circular economy through the lens of design. Sophie explains the importance of thinking about the system you're designing for, not just the object or product itself. We talk about why it's important to design for more than one product life, not just designing for better recycling, but thinking about the third and fourth lives of the product. Who are you designing for and how can you make it fit for repair, reuse and maybe for a service or subscription model? Let's have a listen. Sophie, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast and perhaps we can ask where you're calling us from today. Uh, oh, thank you. Uh, yes, I'm talking from a very sunny um, London, North London, with a, a view out into the road. Very exciting, but uh, looks like it's not going to rain, so it's good. Good stuff. Though I did hear it's about to snow in the southwest, so perhaps we're starting with more wintering, we- wintry weather. <laughs> yeah. And perhaps we can start by asking a bit about your background, because you're one of the earliest people to get involved in the circular economy in the UK. Yes, I suppose I was. You could say that. And also um, coming from quite a different background because um, I'm a designer. I'm trained as a designer and still practice as a designer as well. So um, coming from a background where uh, I was very much focusing around um, sustainability in its sort of purest practitioner form. I mean, I grew up in a quite activist family. Um, in Oxford so lots of kind of demonstrations um, going with my gran and my family to do on the London marches when they happened in the 80s and um, so I've always had that kind of uh, thread of uh, wanting to create change and finding a voice through the means that I could do it so when I was sort of younger I I was really uh, I thought it was amazing that these guys would go out on their ships and go and sort of stop whaling from Greenpeace. I thought, gosh, I'd love to be able to do that. But actually, you've been able to use 
the um, career steps that I've taken in terms of design and then go into using that for a force for good. It's been a very powerful thing for me. And, so, and it's taken me quite a while to sort of articulate it, I suppose, in terms of setting up a business, having a working, profitable, uh, enjoyable, sustainable business, as well as adding a whole layer of um, sort of environmental uh, sensitivity and action to it. So uh, I set up my business in 1997, 98. Um, after being doing my finishing my MA at the Royal College with a with my business partner at that point and we very much set it on this kind of foundation of environmentalism so it was about um, really uh, understanding the principles and the practice so the principles being you know what do you need to do reduce carbon uh, consider your materials think consider um, the impact you have on people etc etc and the practice is then like, how do you choose your materials? How do you make your prints? How do you uh, understand what happens to your stuff after you finish designing it as well, which is really key. So the elements and the kind of principles of circular economy have always been there. And I think they've always been within the sustainability as well. It's just that they were re-articulated around about um, probably about 10 15 years ago, it started to be looked at as something like, I mean, I went on a, um, a UK TI mission in the early 2000s, first decade of the 2000s, where we were looking at designing our landfill. We went over to the Netherlands to look at different ways that people were doing it there. And then it was called uh, resource efficiency. So that's before the kind of term circularity came in, but it was effectively the same thing. And then it kind of switched into it. And that's when Ellen MacArthur Foundation came on and they started to talk about this circular system going from a linear to circular. Um, and so created this new language around it. And that's this, at the same time we started. Um, and actually one of the things that I did was I uh, came up with the idea of for the great recovery, which was, which I'm no doubt we'll talk about a bit in a bit further, but like how designers can actually educate themselves or how we educate designers to think about a circular economy because design is so fundamental to the to the success of such a system yeah and just for those people outside the uk uktti is the uk government's department for trade and industry so that was very yes. much um thinking which about is now innovate that. sorry which is now called innovate uk so it's a kind of way that it's we fund uh innovation around uh yes you say trade and industry and how also the UKTI thing uh, pieces drawing together people who are doing really interesting work and actually allowed people in the UK to go and see what they were doing so it's kind of cross um relationship building as well mm, yeah creating networks and I think going back to that transition between resource efficiency and uh, perhaps industrial ecology and some of the things that were being talked about um, 15, 20 years ago, and then suddenly things coalescing around this circular economy term. I think it's it's interesting how that all suddenly came together. And maybe one of the keys to that was the Ella MacArthur Foundation starting to talk about it in economic terms and starting to try and estimate benefits for businesses you know, some of the environmental benefits are pretty obvious in terms of, 
you know, less waste and less extraction or, you know, ideally no extraction. But starting to pull that together so that governments and trade sectors could begin to envisage how this could work for them, I think is a, an important step in getting business on board and getting businesses to start thinking about what the opportunities might be for them. Um, you know, we can, we can get into discussions on, um, well, there's quite a lot of discussion at the, moment, at the moment about degrowth and so on and some criticism of the circular economy in terms of, um, you know, you can actually use it to fuel business growth and that's not a good thing. You know, it's, if, you, if you're going to grow at the expense of a linear competitor, that's that's kind of okay, but not everybody growing for, for the sake of increasing revenue. But I think that was a an interesting step change in really in terms of mm. how how it was being talked about and how to get businesses starting to really look at the opportunities out of this <coughs> yes so, so leading on to because i think the great recovery project is something that um you know some people have heard about but it's a few years ago now so maybe you could remind us what that was all about and some of the interesting things that came out of it well, yes. Um, and I think uh, just going back to your point about the kind of economic and business case that Ella MacArthur did, I think that was quite, it was quite a fundamental shift. What we're seeing now is coming back, and that was very deliberate for them. You know, they really pushed it in terms of business benefit. And um, the argument now is that we're trying to, I mean, climate change and the climate emergency has pushed that back into the realm of environmentalism, which is which is an interesting way of looking at it. And that's where your, your um, arguments or your discussion, debates around uh, how business, you know, can you have successful circular businesses? Is it better to do to promote a profitable biz, profitability as a business without considering the environmental or against the linear of things? So should we be going for reduction rather than actually carrying on as usual, but doing it in a circular fashion? And, and there are there are it goes both ways, doesn't it? It's a real. It, it, we really haven't come to the conclusions of it, but in terms of the pieces that I was working on at that particular point, I was doing quite a lot of work already um, around in trying to engage designers on future uh, environmental issues. So we had already run a couple of conferences at the Design Council called Green Gauged which was very much focused on um, getting uh, chemists and anthropologists and business people. And we had, you know, uh, developers, et cetera, in front of groups of designers to say, this is the kind of thing that they're really going to need. You know, they're really going to, to for you, they need for you to understand the impact of your design. They need for you to understand that these materials are, are hitting peak, you know, elements, et cetera. So, trying to uh, fuel understanding in the design community. So we'd already done that. And this step towards, I, I effectively, I came back from doing the landfill mission, designing at landfill mission, after having an experience where I was standing behind, we went to this amazing fridge recovery facility where they were taking fridges from all around Europe and effectively putting them through this whole process. It's a very high-tech factory on one end, but at the front end was very people-focused. And what would happen is a sea container of fridges would come in, they'd open the door, they'd put all these different fridges on this conveyor belt, they'd take out the most valuable pit bit at the back, which was, and they'd drain the fridge. So all the, 
liquids and they'd take the compressor out the back and now before it could get crushed and then sort of taken into its constituent materials so you'd end up with a pile of plastic a pile of metal etc etc um and i was standing behind this guy who was who had this kind of target of how many fridges he had to get through uh just to take the back off and every fridge that came he had to have he had to assess what kind of screwdrivers he needed, what tools he needed to get, because none of them were the same. And I was thinking at that point that actually we design front end and we design we're, uh, the, the way that we practice design is very much about the user experience. And the user experience stopped at a certain point. So it either stopped at the sh as soon as that product was picked off the shelf and bought by the consumer or when the customer had decided that the fridge didn't work or it broke or they didn't want it anymore and they threw it away we never thought about we never designed for what we call third or fourth use life which is about you know recovery of set of the materials within that product the reuse the refit the re the repair of that product so we were as effectively as all fridge designers were making this guy's life incredibly difficult and it doesn't matter what where you go if you're in an e-waste facility, exactly the same thing. You know, we were seeing the same brand of TVs, but slight different model. One of them had 180 screws and it needed one screwdriver and the other one needed five different screwdrivers and it had 4,000 screws, you know, but they were from... And so there's no kind of... There was no consistency. And I was thinking, what I need to do is line up all the fridge designers behind this guy and say, look how hard we're making his job have a go at his job and then redesign the product. And effectively that's where the great recovery was born. So we ca I came back and said, I was just moaning. Someone was saying, yeah, this is ridiculous. And they were saying, just do it, go and do it, go and, go and pitch it. So I went and pitched the idea to Innovate UK. And uh, we then decided that we would run it at the RSA in London. And we mirrored, we sort of did it in a collaborative piece where we would, so we were training up the designers. We then put them in touch with different people who are new technologists, innovators, and we paired them up and then they could go for funding through all the new circular economy competitions that were coming out to innovate that, at that time. So it was very much a program based on uh, what we call the teardown design up model, where you, you go somewhere, you see the system as it currently is, whether it's a textile, food, product, e-waste, all these different things, bulky waste, and we went everywhere. And then we took things off the waste pile. We took them apart. Uh, we looked at them. We decided what was in them, what was what was uh, scarce in there, what was on, you know, where the kind of pinch points for the product were. And then we redesigned it. So we developed tools of how you could do that for different types of circular system, whether it's longevity, whether it's uh, reuse or servitization leasing or whether it's recycling or remanufacturing so it's a kind of a way of and then developing the tools around that was really good because then you ended up with these kind of things okay this is this is the way that you go through that process of working that out you know it's all about kind of like asking the right question in the first place rather than jumping to what the answer is which is very which is very much what designers do they get the brief and they immediately have a vision of what it will look like without actually checking whether the brief is correct in the first place. Um, so, and then so building that, sorry. Just just to ask uh, a bit more about that then. First of all, are those tools available and can we include 
links in the show notes so that people yes can... they are they're available they're still on their great recovery website okay and great. downloadable and there's one another one that actually isn't on there but i have a copy of i can give you which is called the double diamond which is effectively the 10 step methodology which is one of the final oh, tools yes, that I we saw, did i saw your um, linkedin post My LinkedIn, a few weeks yeah. ago about that yeah, so, exactly and just so great we'll put those links in the show notes and then just coming back to the uh, design process uh, and this consistency and thinking about the third or fourth lives um, takes me back to something that Katie Beverly, um, who uh, was on the show a few episodes ago, she's an eco designer and she was talking about user centered design. Mm. But it kind of makes me th- think it's it's user centered design and um, uh, not the user so much, but the kind of, you know, the, the repairer and the um, disassembler and so on. So it's thinking about how's this going to work for the user and how's it going to work for everybody who has to interact with it to get it yeah, to have exactly. those subsequent lives. And if, and if you're not standing in their shoes, um, then you could design something that's really unhelpful quite unwittingly. Exactly. And I think this is what um, was happening. I mean, the way that the design, the way that we're taught as designers is very much now on the last, I would say the last decade has been very much focused on user centered design um, which is great because obviously you don't want to have just product design which doesn't actually work for the person who needs it. Um, but that's not enough. You know, you need to have design which is also, uh, yes, as you say, you know, it can be taken apart. So the user changes, which is why we always talk about uh, design for third or fourth life because you're jumping seconds. So if you design for first life, you're designing very much a linear product. If you're designing for second life, you're just designing for sort of part recycling, probably. Um, if you're designing for third or fourth life, you actually take it out of its product placement, its position, <laughs> and you take it into something like uh, recovery for uh, recycling. So you can get your or you get your base materials back so you can start disassembling. You take it from being a product into it's actually constituent materials um so you're you you stop thinking of it as an object you think of it as a a line of materials that you need to get that peak at one product come back then peak at another product come back um and you also uh you think about reuse so if it focuses it it makes you focus on different types of model of design and which is really fundamental for for circular economy. So servitization, leasing, reuse, all of that in the first instance before you get to that outer fast recycling loop, which is currently what we always default to, you know, we can recycle it, which is only kind of the second because you always downgrade the materials because there's too much um, additives in it. Yeah. So and, I think and, it's and very even, much... And even if you don't downgrade, you're expending an awful lot of energy, of energy. to do yeah. that and you've lost a lot of the value embedded in the product at the start. And I think maybe some of the more recent um, design approaches like Fairphone with the modular um, design Mm -hmm. are starting to encourage people to think about how can can you keep this in use for longer by making it easily repairable, making it easy for people to upgrade. I mean, who actually wants to go through the hassle of, um, you know, setting up a new laptop or phone if you could just improve the speed of it or improve the the camera or whatever bit you know is now 
um, lagging yeah. behind, surely that's a lot less hassle um, than actually having to go out and research what's the best new one to buy and, you know, set up all your um, software and IDs and all that sort of stuff over again. So I think it's, you know, it it makes sense for the user um, and for mm. the for the business it's a way of persuading people to stay with your product and with your business instead of having them go out onto the market and think, well, you know, I'm getting rid of this phone. What's the best one now? You know, it's, you're not guaranteed that they're going to stay with your, um, with your brand. Yeah. I mean, there's a number of things, isn't there? So if you, it's, it's uh, something like 18 times cheaper to keep an existing com- customer than it is to get a new one for a business. And also, um, you can, obviously, if you have a leasing and a servitization model, firstly, you're changing the, the way that you're buying something as a user. So you're buying a phone to make calls rather than to have a phone. Um, and so, therefore, the phone company then can then come the insurance company, that can then come the TV company, then can, you know, you can kind of expand the model because you already have the customer there. And if you're building good customer relations and you can say, well, about, what about all your other kind of IT? Can we pull it all together? And you see that, you can see that starting to happen in a lot of servitization models. <clears throat> so where, where do you think we're up to now then? You know, we've, we've made slow progress towards um, getting the circular economy into more general conversation. Um, yeah, but where do you I think, think we are now? I mean, I think that the, the thing about circular economy is that it's, you're talking about a whole economic system. So, you know, when we were two years into the great recovery, people are saying, why are we there yet? You know, how long? I thought this is going to be a revolution. You know, we've got to get there really quickly. And I'm like, this, you know, this is going to take forever. You've got big corporate companies fully embedded into a system that it's not going to be something that you're just going to immediately pull out and sack all your suppliers and start all over again. It just couldn't happen. Um, we also have a cultural system which we need to get over. So, you know, if we're talking about chucking stuff away like a, you know, like a phone, you've got built-in obsolescence, you've got psychological obsolescence, you've got technical obsolescence, you've got all these different factors coming in that are constantly trying to sell you new stuff. And our whole economic system seems to be based on, uh, you know, a GDP system, which is about we only we're only doing well if we are consuming. So the cultural change about how, why we are consuming, what we're consuming and why we're consuming it is a big issue. Um, And so therefore I think it's just taking forever. Now we spent, I mean, I work a lot with businesses now doing a lot of consultancy on circular economy, building business case for, for what they could do, how they could transition, go into, you know, building, um, ideas, roadmaps, etc. Very creatively trying to say, look, there is, and showing the, the benefits and through business and through environment and the sort of triple bottom line. Um, it sometimes you can have the best business case put in front of you and say, look, this is a you know this is a win win on all on all senses, but it's just so difficult to do, and it's such a shift that often what will happen is it will just get sort of shelved or put away for a bit to say well we'll come back to that later and I think there's a sort of there's a need for a lot more bravery in business uh, and I think that's what's interesting that's happening now we're seeing this sort of slight the beginnings of a slight 
uh, awakening of the fact that we had this lots more information, news, lots more, lots more um, impacts on the climate change that is actually saying, you know, this is going to, this is happening now. It's not happening in 10 years. This is happening. This, this is affecting your people, your customers, your employees, your resources, your trade links, all of this stuff. And actually, the more that ramps up and we, the more that we hear on the news, that the more that businesses start to get worried about it and start to think about what kind of impact that's going to have on their business, I think. So I hope, I'm kind of hoping, we were talking before about the circular economy 2.0, that position that's um, in the, with the new report that came out from EMF about um, filling the gap uh, of what, how we get to one, how we get to a reduced increase of 1.5 degrees in our climate in our climate temperature is through resource efficiency and through circular economy. It's not just through renewable energy, and I think that's quite an important um, tool for us to to use towards pushing forward on this on this agenda. Yeah, I agree, and I'm <clears throat> in a, in a way, I suppose, when we're sort of living and breathing circular economy all the time that connection was obvious and we hadn't yeah. we hadn't really thought to um you know make a big deal out of it um but it uh, you know i think um the circular economy is not um it's not perfect because you can have a circular business that still exploits its workers and and uh and so on um but it's the best tool that we've got and it offers lots of advantages for business, but as you say, it needs sometimes it needs the first movers to be really brave. Um, but mm. then, if a company like Apple, which is showing signs of moving towards services instead of trying to sell new products, if they really get on board and start offering more repairs and upgradable iPhones and and MacBooks and all the rest of it, then the other the competitors in that space, I think, would have no choice but to follow. Um, and that's what it needs is kind of, you know, brave first movers to really get going. Yes. And, and the kind of uh, struggle with that in technology and fashion. I mean, I would say Apple are a fashion brand as well. You know, they having been as a designer, I'm one of the early adopters of Apple because that's where, you know, we were. Uh, all design has been done on Apple for year, for centuries, <laughs> not for centuries, but for years and years. And um now I'm kind of locked in, you know, it's very hard for me to actually extract myself. Um, and even within their products, there's incompatibility because their technology on one side is moving so quickly, like the phone. So I can't, my headphones won't, I have to get an adapter to plug my headphones into my phone rather than my new, my newer computer's gone back to the old jack. So it's kind of like, it's kind of chaos I have to carry a whole sort of bag of adapters and cable different cables just to make sure that I can connect everything together so um yes they have to do it they are the they are the absolute key to all this stuff because they're so big you know they 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 sort of command so much of the market these guys and I think it, the problem is I worry that they're sort of like sort of dabbling around the edges and you just think actually what about the f I've always been focused on the mainstream, the mainstream of design, how do you get, you know, how do, how can we actually teach this to every designer that comes out of school? Um, rather than just getting kind of the odd one or two who are just doing amazing stuff, actually, like, you know, there's some fundamental things that just designers just don't consider. 
I mean, I find it, it, you and I would find that shocking. You know, where is your stuff? You're specifying this material because it looks nice. What is it? Are you just believing what the specifier tells you and saying, oh, yeah, sustain, it's eco-friendly. I mean, those kind of phrases, as we know, these greenwash phrases don't mean anything. You start digging, just scratching the surface and you realize that they don't, you know, they don't actually mean what you th- what people think they mean. So there's a kind of willful need for like getting designers to really understand and start to engage with the situation engage with the stuff rather than just say oh it's a load of I've got enough to think about you know we would we even when we're doing uh, the great recovery we'd come across designers say I'm just too busy I can't add something extra to my list of things when I'm designing I'm like don't be so bloody ridiculous <laughs> that's it's just such a ridiculous thing to say of course you can do it of course you can do because then you're going to you know, you end up with such a better product because you, you've you just done a lot more exploration and understanding of the materials you're using or the lifespan, you know. And then other times we would get designed, go, I go, I built this amazing keyboard, which is completely disassembled, can be completely disassembled and be recycled. And I'm saying, that's great. But, you know, if you had used our tool, which was the Circular Network tool, which talks about the whole of the, whole of the design chain that you need to talk to, i.e., the waste guys, the, uh, you know, the material scientists, as well as all the kind of um, academics. Find out what happens to your stuff. That keyboard will get put into an e-waste flow. It will get crushed and put into, you know, taken away to be sort of put into the furnace to get some of those materials back. There's no way that they're going to pick it out of that kind of continuous flow of electronics. Say, oh, no, this one can go off to be carefully... uh, disassembled unless you you change the business model to be something where you, they take back and they you know they disassemble yeah, yeah. so and it comes and it comes can... back to the company so the company's got the is is getting the value if you create exactly. a load of value and then um leave it either leave it on the table for somebody else or just put it into a kind of you know a mainstream flow where as you say it's never going to get spotted um then you've put all that time and and probably yeah. cost into it and no R&D, you know, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And this is why you have to shift from designing a product into designing a system because it has to be like, okay, how does everyone deal with that product? If it's, you know, if you've got a company who really understand, you know, and it, it really depends on the product. So we were saying, you know, you have these tools and you just, you put your, the thing you're designing or whatever you're designing in the middle and you say, okay, what's the value of the stuff in it? Uh, you know, is it on the scarcity uh, the scarcity elements list? Is it endangered? Is it um, can they be reu- bits be reused? And then you understand. You know, if you're doing a sort of water bottle for which you shouldn't be anyway, but like a sort of single use piece of packaging, it will go through the system very quickly. You want to do something which is as monomaterial as possible. Is very simplified. Uh, plastics or polymers so that actually can be recognized and then taken back as clean as possible into the system to be be used as many times as possible if it's an aircraft engine you it's just jam-packed full of endangered elements you need to have a very very tight system which is b2b you know it's very very it's a very close relationship the same you could say with your fairphone model you've got a very close it's about longevity in that system in that in that way of designing and you're talking about uh repair manuals online you're talking about very close relationships with your customer on a b2c level but it's um 
but you're designing the whole system around it rather than just the product. Mm. And I think it was it's really encouraging that uh, a couple of weeks ago I saw a Vodafone advert um, now saying that they're now um, providing Fairphones. So it feels oh, like it's suddenly, you know, with the uh, Fairphone 3, which I've not had a look at yet, I'm still um, <laughs> planning to use my Fairphone 2 for quite a while yet. Um, but maybe with the Fairphone 3, it's got the opportunity to start going mainstream. Um, and that could then, um, you know, switch the other manufacturers in the same uh, direction. That's quite ironic, isn't it? And Nokia doing it. You say Nokia? No, no, Vodafone. Oh, as, as oh in, Vodafone, as yeah. As in, um, you know, we provide the uh, Vodafone service, but you can have a yes, fair yeah, phone yeah. to... Um, yeah, so yeah. I think that's, you know, that's quite No, that's encouraging. good, that's good. Yeah. Um, so brilliant. So we've talked a fair bit about how people can uh, make it happen and we'll put the links to the, um, the Double Diamond and the other tools in the show notes as well. Mm-hmm. And how could people uh, find out more and get in touch, Sophie? Um, well, the Great Recovery uh, work was done between 2012 and 2016. It was a four-year project. And it really, the, the focus was it was to investigate the impact of the role of design within the circular economy, starting with the uh, statistic that 80% of the uh, design environmental impact of a product is predetermined at product its concept design stage. So we were testing that statistic, uh, which is very true. I would say it's probably a bit of a, a bit of a low estimation, almost. Because if you're talking about redesigning the whole system, then you could you've got more probably more impact. Um, but all of that work that we did, and and because we were very much focused on connecting with design practicing designers, we thought. Uh, we would not do lots of written reports because we really wanted people to engage with this, like get interested in it. And because we couldn't take everybody. So a lot of the program going back to it was that we would take people to uh, recycling or landfill centers. Uh, We'd have discussions. So it was very much kind of haptic learning, Uh, kinesthetic in terms of like you take things apart with groups of people, you discuss things, you know, around tools and bits of old keyboards and whatever um and then from that you design up together so you go through the process with a group of people and they weren't all designers they were very much from the design wheel to the network so you you could be sitting opposite uh someone running a a new business venture in you know a new bioplastics and next to them there's somebody a chemist and somebody so it was a, it was very much about creating knowledge and getting people to talk to each other in terms of finding new solutions so that kind of uh that sort of serendipity moment was very important um and so instead of writing lots of quite dry reports we wrote two main reports for the great recovery and we made 40 films and all of the films are currently on our youtube channel still so they're still going they're still up there well worth looking at um and some of them are very, very specific so there's one for instance by and we interviewed lots and lots of people. So we had guys from Cat Reman, for instance, from Caterpillar, um, talking about their leasing model of their engines all the way through to um, interviews in closed loop about plastic recycling. Uh, and then also lots going through the system of teardown design up and interviewing different designers. So they're all still on, they're on our YouTube channel. And then also the Great Recovery website is still up and running and has a huge resource section, which has 
lots of the very lots of all the reports that were coming out at that point so that you know we, there was a slight three-year delay but <laughs> lag but they're all up there there's loads of other blogs that we wrote as well um, there's lots of pieces um, getting designers who were doing our residencies we had summer residencies we had bulky waste residents for instance um, and they are all on our site as well so there's a huge amount of stuff and the reports and the tools are all up there for use for anyone to to get hold of so um it's all open source fantastic and if people want to find more about find out more about your uh, design and communications business how would they get into it so uh yes yeah, so uh, my business is called thomas matthews with two t's.com um and i've been running that business for 21 years so we're very well versed in how to do sustainable uh, environmental circular design in communications particularly we do lots of work around um, we work a lot with architects we work a lot with in terms of space interiors as well and wayfinding and the other thing I do is I do a lot of consultancy so my practice is part of um, a use called the useful simple trust so it's an employee-owned organization and we're a social enterprise as well. And I work a lot with another company. We have, we have four companies within our um, trust, structural engineers, uh, architects, sustainable consultancy and communication design. So I cross over, particularly in the sustainable consultancy and master planning. So I work a lot on circular economy um, and lifecycle analysis auditing for clients as well with our system engineers people and analysis system sort of number crunching people so that's also part of it and you can get if you I mean if people get in touch with me in terms of the Thomas Matthews they can also go to the useful projects website as well which is part of that so that's a useful projects trust yeah that's a useful simple trust and it's the useful, one of simple the trust okay and the company's called useful projects okay Brilliant. So we'll put the um, those links in the show notes. Yes, as well. I'll send you that. Okay, fantastic. Well, that's been brilliant, Sophie. Thank you very much for talking us through all the all the brilliant. Well, not all, <laughs> a tiny <laughs> a tiny amount of, tiny the, amount. of the brilliant work that you've been doing over the um, the last you. last decade or so. And uh, we look forward to hearing about future projects helping to move the circular economy forward. Yes, there's so much to do. We've got so much to do. I'm just working in like so many different things at the moment. We could we could carry on talking for another couple of hours, I think. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Thank you very much, Sophie. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one? Head over to rethinkglobal.info or buy my book, A Circular Economy Handbook for Business and Supply Chains, which takes you through the practicalities, including lots of real examples from around the world. You can get in touch via the website, rethinkglobal.info, or send us a tweet, at rethink underscore global. Please let us know what you think of the podcast, and you can help other people find it by reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. See you next time.